Man has always been a place of refuge to me. This book is about cages, physical cages, but also so many other cages that bind us. During my physical time, physical time being my time in prison, writing was my outlet. You are listening to Pit America's Works of Justice podcast. I am Malcolm Tariq, Senior Manager of Editorial Projects for Prison and Justice Writing, which for over 50 years has amplified the voices of thousands of writers who are creating while incarcerated. Works of Justice spotlights key figures, writers, and artists who are reshaping the conversation on mass incarceration, advocacy, and justice in the United States. In this episode, Postgraduate fellow Emma Stamen speaks with Marlon Peterson, a writer, activist, educator, and host of the podcast, Decarcerated. His debut book, Bird Uncaged, is a memoir that grapples with healing, justice, freedom, and abolition. to start my first question with talking about the process of writing such a vulnerable book. There are multiple moments where you mention that you're putting things that you had once kept secret or hadn't yet processed into words for the first time. So my question is, how did writing this memoir help you to voice these ideas, experiences, and truths that you hadn't yet been able to speak? And were you surprised at all by any of the emotions, memories, or themes that came up? during the writing process? There were definitely things that came up that I didn't expect. As I was writing it, as I was going through the process, there were things that were popping up that I didn't know was going to come up and things that came in my memory. And I was like, oh my God, I forgot about this. It was hard and, you know, and, and deeply emotional. And something made me laugh also. It was all painful stuff. The thing I think about the laughing part was writing about music and music in prison and how, you know, I had my you know, I had wrote a part where I had like my quote unquote date night inside where I would just be in my cell and imagine me outside someplace. And that really brought back good memories. You know, I kind of forgot what that felt like. But then also the process of, of writing it, I think, and the vulnerability of it, I think it's training. This book is about cages, physical cages, obviously, because I was in one, but also so many other cages that bind us. During my physical time, physical time being my time in prison, writing was my outlet, particularly early on in the sentence, I didn't really interact with people unless I had to, for the most part, or if I was playing basketball. But my journal was the place where I interacted, where I was really who I could be, I would write. So the vulnerability practice in writing, it was through that, through that experience. It's like where I had, that was the only place I could go to was my journal. And then so writing this book, in so many ways, is an extension of that journal, or at least that, that training process. The pen has always been the place of refuge to me. So you know, you, I guess you get to see that in, in, in the writing of the book. And I get to experience that for what it's worth as a writer. I got to experience that too, through the writing of it. I had never facilitated a group or class in my life. Plus, Otisville was known as the old timers prison because most of the men there had decades in the system, serving life sentences, and were much older than me. I was intimidated, no doubt. I was 25 years old and only had and only had five years inside. Some of the guys in the class had multiple college degrees from when, when Pell Grants was still afforded to people in prison before Bill Clinton, quote, first black person, end quote, white skin notwithstanding, snatched textbooks out of the hands of men and women who wanted to pass their time mastering college and preparing for life after prison. In 1994, the same year my life changed as a 14-year-old. 
the powers in Washington, including President Bilton and then Senator Biden, banned incarcerated people from giving, receiving Pell Grants that pay for college behind bars. Something that I really appreciated when reading Bird Uncaged were your reflections on masculinity and your relationship with the women in your life in particular. I was really moved by how vulnerably and honestly you were able to discuss harassment, objectification, and harm, and your own participation in this. Could you tell us more about your process for unlearning these practices of toxic and violent masculinity and how it felt to write about this? And also, what do you hope that your book does in the world? And how do you hope that it's received in regards to this topic? I think the awareness of me and my complicity in the roles I played in perpetuating harm, physical, emotional harm towards women growing up. Honestly, the awareness came in activism work. I think being in community with folks, I, I became aware of what it was I was doing was not okay or what I did wasn't okay. So like the experience I, I write about uh, in the book about when I was a kid and we we could say we sexually uh, assaulted. I mean, we didn't physically go through with the entire act, but we did sexually assault a young girl. We were our age, but we still did it, and definitely emotionally, at the very least. We spoke about early things I suppressed and then kind of like keep them, you know, very deep. That was one of the things that came up, and I was kind of like compelled to write about things. I didn't go in and say, well, I'm going to write about this time this thing happened. Like, you know, I knew I was going to write about prison, of course. I know I was going to write about prison and all those sort of things. Those are like the, the big spectacles of my life, but there were so many other things that I didn't think about. And so, in me trying to be vulnerable or me being vulnerable and honest, right, you know, I'm going to write an honest book. Those things came, and I couldn't, like, I couldn't leave it. I was not, like, even if I wanted to, like, I couldn't write a good book or honest book. The other reason why I felt compelled to write it because I also in my travels around my guys, guys I know in my travels through my life, young, prison, adulthood, all the things. A lot of these things that we talk about, even joke about, or like we don't realize, we we don't acknowledge this, you know, use the word toxic. We don't even acknowledge this toxic, it's harmful to them and to us, right? We don't acknowledge it. And I think for me, it was important for me to write about that because when I think about gun violence, particularly, I was involved in gun violence. A lot of my advocacy work since incarceration has been around violence, gun violence, anti-gun violence, all those sort of things. Shooting someone is one of the most horrific things that can happen. There's no question. Like, you're not going to deny that. But also, sexual harm, sexual assault is also one of the horrific things that can happen, too. I think that some of us, cisgender guys particularly, I don't think we, I don't think we spend enough time dealing with that. I think we are somewhat conscious of it. Right? I don't think we're all completely oblivious to it either. I'm not going to act like that either. But I don't think we spend enough time on it. And I think when we think about the harms that happen in our communities, this book is about freeing in our communities and liberation. We don't always think about how we contribute, also how we can help fix these things. And one of the ways we get to deal with things is by revealing it, right? So I was like, well, I'm going to reveal it, right? I'm not going to act like this didn't happen. And I've had so many people who have never did, guys particularly, who, who I mean, who never did, time in jail and never was in street life and, and married and now they have families and all that sort of stuff, right? And reaching out to me like, geez, man, I, you know, I didn't even really think about, you know, when I was, you know, and, you know, everybody who does these things don't end up going to jail, become horrible humans in life and, you know, all them things. They can lead pro-social lives, become presidents, <laughs> right? But the point though is that we are missing the fact that this trauma being experience and being passed on and i want to at least i'm not saying i'm the first person to do it but i'm just saying that at least in my story i, I can tell an honest story without telling that 
Before any facilitator got into a classroom, they received a big-ass black binder with hundreds of photocopied pages of exercises and curriculum for each corresponding topic. We couldn't remove the binders from the building where the Transitional Services Center was located, so I took pages of the binders back to the house unit every night to review. I felt like high school all over again when I take textbooks home to read, except this time I cared about classwork. I was trained to become a teacher in prison at the same age of a teacher outside. I was growing up. Going back to the, the theme of cages, I think it's really great that you're drawing this comparison because it's framing you know, abolition and freedom as you know, more feminist issues and really drawing connections between those. So I, I thought that that was really well done. And, and I do think that coming from your perspective and coming from you know, someone who has actually done these things, I think that's going like, to be really effective, like you said, for other people who may not have realized that they have these complicities as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think you mentioned abolition and, you know, th- th- part of what abolition is, is being able to deal to to constantly be thinking about the ways we handle, deal, do things in, in almost in real time. And, and in what ways am I sort of contributing to a harm or con- perpetuating a harm or creating a new one or whatever it is? And how am I dealing with that? What does the kind of be? accountability look like about that in that real time? I should say this too. Like I didn't go out to, I didn't start to write an ab- like I didn't, I didn't set out to my publisher and say, hey, I'm writing a book about abolition. That was not what happened. It, it, it was literally the process and I got there, even though I was aware of it and I was, you know, I'm an advocate of it before the book. I, I wasn't introduced to abolition and writing this book, but I didn't go into this memoir and say, I'm going to write an abolitionist memoir. It became that as I went in. And I think when I realized, as I said, I've learned a lot from me re- from the writing of the book too, is that part of what abolition requires is this constant, you know, my boy Cassie likes to say revision, right? But like this constant revision of or I of or thinking through of how we deal, how we do things, and how we approach things, and how we react to things, and how we react and deal with some of the harder things in our communities, right? Or in ourselves largely. You know, the title Abolition is Freedom Song was the other half of the title. The book didn't come towards the until the end. You didn't you didn't come up with that until the very end of the book. Most people who go to prison at a young age grow up and mature. Most people outside prison mature too. But most people like to believe the illusion that prison is the intervention that stops crime. But no, it's getting older, having a sense of usefulness. Believing in something you want to live for. The idea of cages comes up a lot throughout the book, and you talk about how there are cages created for people, but also cages that people create for themselves, and then within that cages within those cages. And kind of going off of uh, your ideas about abolition, you write, I want to end all the prisons that bind us. And I just think it's really effective how you're able to expand the image and kind of illuminate the reality of cages that are outside of what we, you know, first assume, which is the physical prison space. So how do you hope that your book contributes to these conversations around abolition and freedom? Literally last night, I went and spoke with a group of boys and these projects, right? Last night, these projects in Brooklyn here. And these boys are like, I think from ages 16 to like 23. And it's late. Like this is I left there at nine something, so it's not your average after school program. A lot of these boys aren't really in school, attached to school. They, you know, they in and out the sit like they they they're living hard lives as teenage boys, but hiding it. I think for me, in terms of what it is, I should say, and it was hard. And they met me last night. 
I met them last night and it was it was such a refreshing time with them. And, and, and I, you know, they usually hesitant. I don't know who this guy is, who you and by the end of the night, they were all like, you know, we you're switching Instagrams and all that at the end of the night. Right. I bring that experience into the into the question because part of what I want this book to do as it has a feminist approach to issues of abolition and incarceration or freedom from all these sort of cages. I wanted this book to be able to impact people like them who, who for, many, for one, for one aren't, aren't the people who people, book publishers aren't marketing books to. They aren't the people who likely will think it makes sense to sit down and read a whole ass book. They are the people that many of us, even in our activist circles, from my own experience, discard because they engage in a lot of harmful, say things, harmful things, they do think, but they are, for me, like they are our possibilities too. Like I was, I could have been sitting in that room 20 years ago. So what I'm saying is that I, you know, I want this book to be able to be that bridge between activism and academia, street shit. And, you know, some of these, you know, some, some of our, some of our, our protest spaces, right? Our protest spaces aren't necessarily the street shit, right? Where a lot of these people are and whatnot, right? I want this book to be able to impact people like where I come from. I want it to impact a broader audience. And I think it is. But also with those folks, because those are the folks where a lot of our bad policies are based off of when these little boys and girls and, and they when they do they when they do things as young people. And, it, and it's harmful. Right. It's harm. I'm not taking away the harm, but it's harmful. That's how we create these policies about we need more policing and more, you know, build more like they are the ones who we build these things off of. So my thing is that I want to be able to my words to be able to also get to them. You know what I mean? I want them to be down with us too. And I want us to be down with them, but we just got to understand that, you know, the way we don't always communicate to each other in the most healthiest way, right? And that's just a truism. It is true. And we sometimes communicate each other in harmful ways and dismissive ways and passive aggressive ways, all these things. But I also know, I always say, I know they are our possibility. You know, I've, I've been a person, you know, I don't, in the book, I don't write about all the work I've done after all the experience I've had post-incarceration, but I've been, around people like bad girls, boys, days, everywhere around in a lot of parts of this country, a lot of parts of the world, in jails and communities. And a lot of our well-intentioned objectives, theories, don't get to them. And I want to get to them. Nadia and the kids in her school, along with my co-facilitators at Transitional Services, Moses, Bourne, Chinese League, Che, Big Tom, Rakim, Booth, Sirius Black, Old Man Bama, Newton, Reem, and the hundreds of men who I would eventually facilitate classes for over the next four years were the community that grew me. They were my accountability, my intervention. That does really come across in the way that you write the book and what you're saying about bridging this gap between the academic and the, the activism. Because, yeah, I feel like books about abolition have become very academic, using a specific language that isn't always accessible to people when, I mean, abolition came from grassroots and came from the people who are actually directly impacted. So I think that's really great that you're kind of bringing that conversation back to its origins in a way. Came from people who were illiterate. Yeah. You know, know, formerly enslaved folks who were in many cases illiterate. So, you know, it was the practice of it that was more important than the just the naming of it. It was the practice of it. And, I, you know, I think collectively for those who are in the academic space, I'm in the academic space also. But for those in the academic space, those who aren't, I think, you know, we we are trying our best to be able to create inclusive art. And I think one of the ways that 
you do it is kind of the form that the book takes. It's almost uh, kind of takes a scrapbook form in the way that you are not just including, you know, direct narrative, but you include quotes and letters. You know, you have pictures, you have different speeches and poems. And I think that that's really effective in kind of, you know, bringing in these personal experiences and these different forms of art. So my question uh, is, how did you decide what materials to pull from your life and where to put them in the book? And then what effect do you hope that these more intimate details have on the reader? I was probably a little bit more than midway through the book when I realized what I was doing. And now I went back and revised some stuff. But and what I was doing was that same, as you described, I didn't realize I was doing that in terms of like, you know, you put in letters here, you put in quotes. And I was just kind of like doing it like a hodgepodge. And then I realized, oh, I understand why I'm doing this. And I've made it a little bit more intentional as I went through it. And I think the decision was ultimately that this book needed to be about the feelings and emotions that goes behind all these experiences that I had. Right. So like, like I could have spent a lot of time, there's time in terms of like the actual, you know, the crime for which I wasn't incarcerated for. Right. I could have spent a lot of time just giving you details of all of all the things and all of that. And probably other drafts I did. Right. I want to tell you the harm. I wanted to, I wanted to get to the harm that I know I was a part of. And people, I wanted to tell that feeling. I want to tell feelings of incarcerated, not just like people fight inside and this happened. That person got cut. And those things happen, too. Right. I could have wrote a whole book about that stuff. Right. I was like. We have enough movies and stuff about that sort of thing. I want to talk about the feeling, like how do you experience isolation, what that feeling really is like, or what does it feel like to be that child of uh, incarcerated and dealing with the guilt of knowing you've harmed your family, like your family's dealing with this too. That's why I wrote to my mother and I write to my father and I write affectionately about my nephew. But I wanted to, like those things we don't speak about enough. The, like the really deep emotional impact that incarceration has and damage that it does. But also prior to incarceration, I'll tell you about, you know, things like that. Point is, I decided I wanted to, I wanted to tell you how I feel <laughs> as succinctly as possible. I wanted to tell people how I feel and how I know so many people I've been around feel and felt. Except for Nadia and the Young Scholars Program, all my teachers were crooks, murderers, arsonists, heroin addicts, drug dealers, and recidivists. They were bald-headed, Black, Latinx, Chinese, indigenous, Garifuna, face-scarred, fathers, sons, husbands, grandfathers, great-grandfathers, Ronald Reagan Republicans, Asada Shakur loyalists, Wall Street Journal enthusiasts, and immigrants. I want to go back to how you say you write about the impacts on your family, because that's something that I, I found really engaging about the book and also the effects of you know them coming in and visiting you and you being able to see the physical effects and like their emotions and their their faces I want to talk a bit more more about your writing specifically about your mother one passage that I just wanted to highlight for the audience to get more context you write too bad though and I couldn't experience prison without bringing her in there with me she did nothing to deserve living in a cage especially a cage created by her own son. So could you talk a bit more about how writing this memoir changed your relationship with your family and uh, your mother in particular? I think writing it didn't change my relationship. I think I was in that process already, which is why I was able to write about it. But during my incarceration, I even was very aware of what I, w- what I was doing to my parents. Right? I saw it when I saw, I, I could see it on their faces when they, whenever they came to visit and, all the things I could see, like, you know, you call and they can no longer afford the phone. 
and collect calls. Like I knew what I was, I knew that was me. I knew that was me, right? But also in the writing of it and being home all these years now and seeing my parents age and seeing the effects of age. My father has dementia now. He's just in the ER two nights ago, right? And deal with that all the time. I think, all right, let me tell you this. Let me say it like this, Emma. I went through a deep depression while writing this book. And not only because of the book, but it was other things going on in my life at the time. And, and then also I was like ripping off, ripping off bandages from scars, emotional scars that I didn't know I had and had, like I was telling you about. And there was a part of me that felt I was the reason for a lot of my parents accelerated health issues. Right. I was the youngest person. I was the first person to introduce them to the prison, to the, all of it, courts, police, prisons, all these sort of things. Right. And in writing it and just realizing seeing the impact and like going back to the emotional state of what it was like being incarcerated, but also what it was like to experience my parents coming to see me in phone calls and all that money issue. I felt like I, it, it didn't, I, I needed to acknowledge that they, despite whatever flaws they had as human beings in their own lives, that they were wonderful human beings to me or are human be- wonderful human beings to me, right? I mean, I wanted to put that in words. I didn't want to just, I said it to them, you know, I always say it to them because I didn't, this book isn't the first time, but like, I wanted to like, this is a, this is a ledger. This is, this is, this is, this is a, this is a ledger of our history of our family. At the very least, this book is our family document. You know what I mean? And our family knows how much, at least parts of our family, my parents, my siblings, you know, nephew, like the role they played in supporting me throughout all my, you know, heart, my, my darkest moments. And I just want to know. So I don't think the book changed it. I think it just heightened it and amplified it to the point, you know, where the whole world gets to see that. But also, I should say this last point, Emma, I want more people who have experienced these, you know, so many of us have gone through these systems and all that. So I think when we really stick with the impact our uh, decisions have on people closest to us, it, I'm not saying you're supposed to be ruled by those decisions, by, by that, but particularly when it's times when we may be doing something that's hurtful, harmful, want to do some harm to somebody else. I want people to really think about all the people we're bringing into that decision, right? Because that's, that's the thing that prevent people from going to prisons or committing crime. The police don't stop people from committing crime. They don't. The fact that you go to jail don't really stop people from committing a crime. It doesn't. You, I knew you get arrested if you rob somebody. Everybody does. You rob somebody, you go and get Like, everybody knows that, right? But like, it's really being able to sit with how many people am I bringing with me into this one decision, right? That's the thing. And I want people to really sit with that. And I think that's also part of the reason why I include that into the book. We were a medley of people who were usually insecure and rarely certain. We were a community of healers, warriors, jesters, and teachers. We were people broken by experiences, surviving the best way we knew how. We were you. That's the thing about prison I wish more people understood. Incarceration doesn't rehabilitate people. This episode of Works of Justice was produced by postgraduate fellow Emma Stamen and mastered by Sarah Weck. Music used throughout this episode was created by B.L. Sherrell and Fury Young of Die Jim Crow Records, the nation's first nonprofit record label for formerly and currently incarcerated artists. Members of PEN America's Prison and Justice Writing Team include Mary Concepcion, Prison Writing Program Coordinator Anjali M. Salem, Program Assistant Nicole Shawan Jr., Deputy Director, Prison and Justice Writing 
Kate Meissner, Director of Prison and Justice Writing. Robert Pollack, Prison Writing Program Manager. Malcolm Tariq, Senior Manager, Editorial Projects. Sophia Ramirez, Postgraduate Fellow. Emma Stamen, Postgraduate Fellow. You can subscribe to and hear previous episodes of Works of Justice on any podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. To learn more about PEN America's prison and justice writing, please visit pen.org slash works of justice. That's P-E-N dot org slash works of justice. <laughs>